Hello and good morning. Welcome to the Lockdown Generation. How do youth rebound from crisis and thrive? Thank you for joining this conversation. This session is part of the third annual Rising Economy Conference. This is just one of more than 20 conference sessions helping us to cut through the noise and find clarity about the future of where we live and work. My name is Pedro Marquez, Vice President Research at Royal Roads University. I'm very glad to join you from our campus located on the ancestral land of the traditional lands of the Lekungan and the Swepson peoples. The topic we'll be exploring is close to my heart. First, I was fortunate to serve as part of the initial SIPP board in 2016, and I have seen the significant progress and advances in breadth and depth in, the, in this regional organization, and how it has made instrumental, it has become instrumental in tackling challenges and advancing opportunities in the South Island region. As well, I, as a professor and a father of three wonderful young adults, I have witnessed firsthand the challenges of the COVID-19 pandemic and ha- has had on the youth, including the amplification of disparities due to unequal access to technology, the impact of mental health and social connection and the concerns on the outlook of the future, including ch- challenges such as climate change. I am a firm believer in the power of collaboration, creativity, and constructivism. And by working together, we can not only solve problems, but foster hope and inspiration for future generations. And now, it is my true pleasure to introduce to you your moderator, uh, Mr. Dallas Gislison. Dallas is the Director of Economic Development at South Island Prosperity Partnership and Chief Operating Officer of the Center for Ocean and Applied Sustainable Technologies. Dallas has played instrumental roles in many industry-leading economic development organizations and initiatives in Canada, the U.S., and overseas in the last 15 years. Having worked in youth policy in the past, he remains passionate about the next generation and the role in shaping cities and society. Thank you, Dallas, for the great role that you do as part of our uh, community. Over to you, Dallas. Good morning. Wonderful. Thank you so much, uh, uh, Dr. Marquez, for the uh, kind introduction, and welcome everyone to today's session. Uh, an, import, an important topic, as uh, was alluded, and one that's also near and dear to me, not just because I worked in youth policy, um, but I also have uh, uh, two, two children. One is a young adult uh, attending UVic. Another one is uh, an, an emerging uh, teenager, and uh, it's interesting living in a household with with you know, this new generation coming up because they observe the world in such a, uh, you know, a fresh set of eyes, but also, you know, obviously have some anxieties about the future. Um, and some of these are we're going to talk about today. Um, so I'll get to the, I'll get, I'll introduce our, our wonderful panel in a second. Um, I just wanted to talk about sort of the topic, uh, just, um, I mean, you know, going back to this work that I did in youth policy, one of the the inspiring figures in this work was um, someone who everyone will will know, and that's Nelson Mandela. So Nelson Mandela was the first um, sort of world leader, if you will, uh, to embark uh, and create uh, what's something called a national youth policy framework. Uh, there are many countries that have these now, but South Africa was the first. And Nelson Mandela has this uh, quote where he says, um, I'm going to paraphrase it. So, but he says, you can tell a lot about a civilization, uh, by the way they treat their youth and young people. And I think that's, you know, true today when you look at 
the issues that, that young people face, um, as were alluded, unemployment, unaffordability, uh, lack of housing or, or, you know, mental health issues, and this new thing that, that many of us are grappling with around sort of climate anxiety and, and sort of the, the pressures of uh, uncertainty. So we have three tremendous uh, speakers with us today to talk about this, and more importantly, um, to inspire us and talk about solutions. What can we do to retain, to engage youth and young people in our communities, in our workplaces, and maybe even in our own homes? Um, I want to offer a quick definition, though. Youth, when I say youth, I, I like, I sort of, um, I use the United Nations definition, which is uh, young people aged 15 to 24. But then I also add this young people, youth and young people, uh, to say that, you know, we're not just talking about a very narrow defined youth and youth definition, but we're also talking about young adults, people who are starting their careers, coming out of high school, post-secondary, uh, or, or not. Um, and they're, they're equally as important. So youth and young adults is sort of a, the phrase that I've been using. So I'm going to turn over to our speakers in a second, but just a quick overview on the format. Um, about halfway through the conversation, uh, we'll be taking questions from our, well, sorry, questions from the audience. Uh, and you can submit a question uh, anytime through the Zoom Q&A, which I, is down there uh, below the video. Uh, the session is actually also being recorded. Um, and so you can also submit your question anonymously if you don't want it to live on forever and ever on the internet. Um, to interact with the attendees, you can use the Zoom or, or Whova chat. Um, we've asked the, we've asked the speakers not to answer questions directly because that'll be distracting, but, um, later on we might be able to do that. Um, but the production team will be monitoring, um, the, uh, Whova chat as well as the Q&A for, for those joining us, uh, in the app itself. And, uh, also finally, if you're posting any takeaways to social media, you can use the event, uh, hashtag, which is rising economy. 2022. All right. So jumping into it, let's uh, introduce our, our uh, panelists today. So, uh, first, uh, Robert uh, Bernard, who is the co-founder of Youthful Cities, an organization focused on applying the power of urban youth globally, uh, making cities better in the process. Youthful Cities creates data-driven solutions, including indices that rank cities, uh, as well as web apps to help young people use data effectively. Uh, next, Ashwini Selva Kumaran is the co-director of the policy and advocacy team at Regeneration, a group of Canada's most impact-focused students and young professionals, using their energy to open doors for next, the next generation of sustainability leaders. Very exciting stuff. Ashwini is a recent graduate from the University of Toronto, uh, and she's also the president and founder of the Brown Citizen Circle, which she started after realizing a need to bring together and vocalize the racialized experiences of Black, Indigenous, and South Asian youth. A true leader. Uh, next, uh, Isabella Kennedy, who is the editor-in-chief of the Martlet, and many in our audience will know the Martlet, which is U University of Victoria's independent newspaper. Um, Isabella manages a team of young journalists, editors, and volunteers. A former academic All-Canadian, Isabella completed her BA with an honor specialization in creative writing and English language and literature with distinction from the University of Western Ontario um, in 2021. Uh, she has a passion for great storytelling and a drive to help others. So let's jump into this. Um, I'm going to ask each of you, um, actually maybe just 
while I have, uh, yeah, so maybe turn your cameras on as we get going here. Um, so I'm going to ask each of you to uh, tell us in your own words uh, why this topic is so important to you right now. We all know about the COVID-19 and the, and the you know, the issues with lockdowns, et cetera. But what we might not know is uh, how is this impacting youth and young adults today? I'm going to start with, um, let's start with Robert with, uh, with Youthful Cities. Very well. I spent uh, last 30 years in some ways exactly in this topic. So it's, it's always been, it's been important. I think what I've, seen in just in the last two years is it's accelerated a lot of the big challenges that young people face the pandemic you know there's lots of things that were happening before the pandemic that just i'm looking at you know double the unemployment rate amongst young people for example that's been around forever but it just it actually went to triple during the the pandemic and it was the slowest group to rebound just as a quick example so everything we do in these cities is really focused on this topic so it's uh it's really important to me Great. Thank you, Robert. Um, how about uh, Isabella? Same question. Yeah, so I think this topic is really important because a lot of the rhetoric, I think, has shifted for getting back to normal. Um, and for a lot of students and for a lot of young people, I think we almost shifted away to getting back to normal too quickly. A lot of people experienced huge loss in terms of not being able to go through major milestones in their lives. People graduated through Zoom. People didn't get to have those really big life experiences. Um, and there has been makeup graduations and makeup parties and things like that. But there was this whole part of our lives that was taken away. And um, I think it's important to reflect on the lasting effects of that and not being able to go through and experience those moments. Um, and then also looking at, yeah, how can we challenge um, what's been going on and how can we come through and thrive after not experiencing those things? Yeah, no, as an anecdote in my own house, my 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 older son starting university, you know, sitting in his bedroom in virtual classrooms, uh, not having that experience, like you said, of of going going to college and, you know, all the social connections and those new experiences. Ashwini, um, what about you? Sure. So I really like Isabella's point. And to speak to that, back in 2020, when the pandemic first started, our organization, BCC, the Brown Citizen Circle, we actually did a few roundtable interviews. And we talked to youth, not only in Canada, but internationally, to see how the pandemic has sort of exacerbated certain inequities that were already happening at the forefront beforehand. And now many youth felt extremely lost. And I remember even for myself, my bedroom transformed into a classroom. It was such a different point in time. And going forward, I just think that youth are at a unique vantage point to really lead the future. One thing that I've been hearing consistently since the pandemic and even before is that youth are falling behind. But I actually want to challenge this notion and see how actually can we lead forward. We have so many unique skill sets, and especially in this technocentric era, I think our capacity and passion for ongoing learning will really help to lead as we enter a, a new era of change. So I've always been passionate about youth development, specifically for visible and racialized minorities. And I'm excited to see how youth can further equate into the situation. Well, you know, you you skipped ahead because my my later questions are going to 
switch us on to this optimism note because I'm I I too am a perpetual uh, relentless optimist, and I think young people have so many assets and and potential and leadership and and all these uh, great skills. So we'll talk about that in a few moments. Um, but let's first focus on doom and gloom. Um, just kidding. Um, so, <laughs> so first question, uh, I'm going to go back to you, Ashwini. Um, so every generation seems to have these major world events that, uh, you know, or circumstances, if you will, that shape their worldview, um, shape their, their also shapes their challenges that they have to overcome, but also the opportunities to, um, what do you think is different about today's uh youth and young people the, the challenges that are faced and and circumstances uh that maybe previous generations uh, might not appreciate yeah definitely so i think there's a few things i mean for starters as a lot of younger canadians are finishing school including myself and we're beginning, beginning to work or entering that sort of new landscape i think i would say we are feeling very squeezed by the stagnant sort of income, higher costs, there's less time and significantly more debt. But also oftentimes we found, at least I'll speak on behalf of the youth I work with, that we don't feel extremely heard at the decision-making table because we feel that a lot of governments and socio-academic or political institutions are making decisions, not only without considering the sort of present-day trade-offs, but also unique challenges at this time period, such as mental health, burnout, climate anxiety, eco-grief, that can really hinder youth sustainable growth and progress. And another challenge I would bring up too is that youth are hugely underestimated in terms of the knowledge and capacity that we can bring to the table, specifically coming out of the pandemic and in the skill set that we are assumed to be bringing into the workforce. And in my work, this is particularly true for Indigenous communities, youth with disabilities, and racialized minorities or visible youth who are particularly uniquely disadvantaged and require sort of additional resource building to overcome profound barriers. So to sum it up, I think the most important thing to recall is, as opposed to the past, I think having a sort of one-size-fits-all approach is not going to work for our new and emerging youth population, which is extremely diverse in terms of the lived experiences that we bring forward. And especially now, it's really critical to consider the distinct power of a diverse group of youth and really focus more on equipping us with the tools and support to encourage our diverse skill sets and really move forward as agents of change. Yeah, well, geez, wonderful answer. <laughs> Thank you so much. Uh, Isabella, so, so same question. So, um, you, you day by day by day are sort of <laughs> reading the sentiment of a place where multi-generations are, are literally, colli- I don't want to say colliding. That sounds violent. <laughs> Interacting. <laughs> so what do you think? Uh, how does this generation and their issues, how does it differ? Um, and, and what might, you know, I don't say older, more experienced generations. Wiser, no, kidding. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what should, what, what are we not appreciating? I think a one thing is that not everyone experienced the pandemic in the same way. Everyone talks about, you know, it was this huge global experience, and everyone has bits and pieces of the same experience. But I think youth, in particular, were really affected. Like I said, those huge loss of milestone moments in your lives. Um, not being able to be a kid, like if you're, you know, a teenager going to high school and then suddenly you can't be that person anymore. There was huge loss of identity and people I think are still, sorry, youth and young adults, I think are still trying to find who they are and who they can be and what the world is even going to look like. So I think, you know, although everybody had 
similar experiences going on Zoom, doing stuff like that, youth were still often essential workers. Youth were still either living with their parents, which they didn't expect to, um, or they were living with large groups of people in rentals. Um, I think it's important to remember that not everyone's experience was the same and that youth, I think, in particular, had a huge loss. Um, and I think they're still trying to figure out who they are and how they can make the world better for themselves and different and not just back to normal. But what does normal even look like now that the world has changed so much? Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Um, we hear this a lot in, uh, especially as, um, decision makers consider projects, uh, like, like housing or density housing or affordable housing is that oftentimes we hear, you know, previous generations say, oh, well, you know, I had to work hard for my house or I couldn't live in a nice place like Greater Victoria when I was young and you don't have any right to it or anything like that. And sort of it's, it's this, this sort of an act of dismissal of like, uh, not realizing the, the data, which, which actually says that, Incomes have not kept up, you know, where, where a house in 1980 might have been, you know, twice your annual salary and now it's 15 times your annual salary, for, for example. But Robert, uh, over to you. What's, what do you, what do you, what's your perspective on this? The way I look at it and been doing this now for three generations is to look at the formative years. That sets up, as Isabella said, that sets up what's normal for each generation going forward. So just if you, to, cut that conversation of I remember when I was I had it tougher than you um you didn't if you're in any generation that's Gen Z that's you know we could we could talk we could go way back to World War II that's kind of the last time things were as tough as they were for you know for this generation from a formative experience um you mentioned incomes just pause for a second I think of your formative years between, let's say, say 15 and 24, if you took two years out of that formative experience, would you call that the same as, as, you know, what's that, what's that going to do to you? I mean, it's, it's, it's just a massive impact on all the levels that, um, Ashwini and, and, and Isabella have talked about, like two years, 20% of your formative experience in COVID is, is a, is a massive impact. And no other generation has gone through anything like this, even during, by the way, even during the world war on a global level like this. So, um, and I think the, the fear for me is, you know, what did you benefit? Like what, what did they get out of this at the end of their sacrifice? Like how many young people literally sacrificed their long-term lives to save other generations' lives? Um, and you know, as, as Wendy said, no one's even listening to them. So. Interesting. I mean, I just, I'll throw one stat out that I picked up recently. Maybe I'll go back to this. I like to do audience participation so that everyone can just write this down. Like, what was the average age of the Canadian population in 1952, 70 years ago? What do you think? Ashwini, what do you think? Average age. Isabella. 52. I'm just picking it up. It's 70 years ago. 60? Yeah, I'd guess high 30s. 27. <laughs> no, really? 20, yeah, 27. What's it now, what is it now in Victoria? Uh, I think it's 41.7 or something like that. 42, yeah. Four, 45. But 45. Yeah. 
So that's different, right? Why is no one listening to Ashwini at the table? Because she's the she's not the majority anymore. She's the minority, just from an age standpoint. Interesting. So that so that those dynamics. I mean, we can talk about the economic. You know, I guess we're going to get into Victoria as well. But it's you know the affordability crisis in Victoria is worse than most other big cities in Canada, et cetera, et cetera. So let's. Uh, I don't want to take up too much time. <laughs> we'll do some more audience participation later too. Yeah. So I'm gonna, so next question. I'm just going to build on that a little bit because um, one thing that you said that just reminded me of a conversation I had with my grandmother, actually, who is uh, 94 years old, but she, we were talking during the, the lockdowns and she was isolated and my grandfather's passed away and she's alone in her apartment uh, for, you know, you know, getting her food delivered. And like, we're talking months and months and months. And uh, she actually said something to me that, that really almost broke my heart. She said, she said, you know, this is actually almost worse than the war. And she said, not in the sense that, you know, young people were going off and fighting and dying. She said, but for us back in Canada, mostly women, right, who didn't go to the war, she said, um, at least back then we had each other. And that really stuck with me because as humans, it's so fundamental, like connecting to other humans is, is just everything, right? Like that's, we're communal. We need connection. We need social connection. And I'm looking at my son who's stuck in his bedroom and not getting that. So that's. Yeah, very, very uh, profound uh, to think about that. So in talking about these lockdowns and these these aspects um, that have impacted uh, young people in their formative years, as you said, Robert, um, you know, working remotely, even when you're starting your career um, from professional development, from a learning and osmosis uh, perspective as well, right, working in isolation. How, how do we think this is going to play out now going, you know, I, I don't want to say post-pandemic yet because we are still in the pandemic, by the way. <laughs> um, but how do we think this is going to play out here over the next, let's, let's say the short term being the next, you know, couple of years as we sort of emerge from this COVID era into a post-COVID era? Um, start with, uh, with Isabella on this one. Yeah, definitely. So looking at, I think, university in particular, um, although a lot of people didn't like moving to online learning, there it actually opened up access for a lot of students who might not have otherwise gone to university. And so I think that in the coming years, universities are going to start offering more online learning opportunities and doing it better, um, not necessarily the way that we rushed to do it in 2020, but um, setting up you know, huge cameras, maybe, um, and stuff like that. So I think online learning is really going to advance. And I think that that's going to be able to help people who wouldn't have otherwise been able to access university. On the other side, I think also you're going to see students yearning for in-person connections and for um, going to class and things like that. So I think there's going to be an interesting way of balancing, okay, how, how much is not enough connection and how much is, um, can I go online and, and still learn in that way? So I think even, um, things like conferences and informational sessions like this that's happening online, this is really accessible for people who wouldn't have otherwise gone to a conference like this. But I think it's also important and I think it's going to be something that people are battling with. Okay, how much are we going to give up connection in order to have that more 
more access. So I think that's how it's going to play out, at least on an educational university standpoint. Yeah, I, I like that perspective. It's sort of this idea of hybrid, sort of more, a more hybrid world, which is, a, you know, in many cases, a more accessible world. So, yeah, I like that. Uh, Ashwini, how about uh, what do you th- what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, I like what Isabella was saying in terms of hybridity becoming more equated with accessibility. And when you were speaking to that experience with your grandmother, it made me think a lot about the meaning of community and community engaged learning, which is something that has been transformative for me in terms of its definition during the pandemic. And I think in terms of work and then speaking in terms of education, too, because I was until recently a student, a lot of the beauty in community engaged learning is the work that directly happens with community led organizations. So, for example, those experiences that happen spontaneously through various interactions with people and the feelings associated with working in a direct or physical space. And it is very hard to reproduce this online or in your kitchen, in your bedroom. But like Isabella was saying, at the same time, we're in a very unique standpoint because a lot of new opportunities have opened up. For example, when I used to work at the university and I worked online during the peak pandemic period, we had a unique ability to expand our scope and location in terms of fostering connections to other organizations online or creating new relationships beyond Toronto or beyond Ontario, which is where I'm based, by the way. So I think in the future, a hybrid work model is becoming this sort of new norm, and it will hopefully take the best of what our remote experiences had to offer, but also not being careful not to forget what the beauty of in-person contact allows for. And in general, I just think that this moment, still being stuck in the pandemic, maybe not in the peak period anymore, has really reinforced the priority of work and professional development needing to stem from sort of community emphasis. So more now than ever, focusing on problem solving and tackling the current inequities that we've seen exacerbated from this crisis, but also hopefully returning to the central tenets of community-engaged learning, which is focusing on prioritizing what our community needs right now. Wonderful. Thank you. Um, Robert, what, what are your thoughts on this? We actually built out three different scenarios where we think they'll really broaden out, and I'll try to come back to some specifics, but as far as what's going to happen after the pandemic or as we head out, maybe two, five years out. So the first one is that this generation gets stuck. Uh, and there's actually a lot of evidence to say if you if a generation doesn't get a job within six months of finishing their level of sort of level of education, it's actually very tough for them to catch up in that six months. So we've now done that for two years. Uh, and the stuck is also with summer jobs got stuck. Co-ops got stuck. Internships got stuck. Everything got stuck in the system. But everyone, you know, another year got added to the system each year of the pandemic. So we've got this buildup that's just going to get kind of clog the system uh, that we need to get out of as quickly as possible. And, you know, stuck can also be on a lot of <laughs> mentally stuck and choice stuck. Like there's a whole bunch of pieces to that one. The second one could be dramatic is, is fight. This generation could really fight back. Um, the generational inequity is so out of whack right now. Um, the cost of living is so out of whack. Uh, the lack of a voice is so out of whack um, that they might just say, forget it. Like, let's, we got to move, we'll literally jump over and, and, and try to take over on their own. Um, that could be disastrous for a lot of reasons, but you know, how much can they handle is what we've been looking at when, when they, uh, have no option 
uh, but to fight that that may be the the way they go. The third one is about regeneration. So it's, you know what Isabella Ashwini has been talking about is can can they take the best of the experience and and I'll talk a little bit later about this and the kind of inherent youthful values that young people bring to the table and actually turn turn things into something a lot better. That's that's obviously the optimistic one. I wish I had two optimistic ones to every um, more pessimistic one, but those those are the three uh, three scenarios that we're looking at right now. Yeah, very interesting. Um, yeah, so I want to I want to just expand on that in the next question here because um, you know actually as, as you were talking, it just reminded me of the the recent midterm elections um, where. A lot of people are saying they're like, oh, Gen, Gen Z showed up and basically saved our asses is whatever. That's, ba- that's basically the, what happened in the midterms is that everyone was expecting this and talking about this red wave of people fighting back against Biden and all this stuff. And then Gen Z shows up and says, yeah, no, actually we want, we value, you know, climate change and all these issues that, that the Republicans uh, don't seem to touch. And so it sort of saved the, saved uh, what, what could have been a disastrous, well, just my, I'm, I'm stating my political, uh, Affiliations here very openly, but well, could have been there were a, those on on Fox yeah. News saying that they should raise the voting age in the U.S. to 21. Yeah, exactly right. Isn't that a ridiculous? But anyway, so just uh, expanding on on your on your topic, Robert, and, and back to you on this. Uh, so 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 going into the workforce challenges. So you have these three scenarios. Um, you know, we're at this strange point in history where we have uh, actually labor shortages across the country across. Many different industries, hospitality to healthcare. Uh, the, the talk of uh, recession is obviously uh, heating up. Um, it's sort of looming on us as well. Um, what should young people be doing? Um, you talked about fighting back and this hybrid model and stuff, but what should young people be doing to prepare? Um, and then we're gonna. So we'll, we'll go. To, we'll talk about young people's role first, and then we'll shift uh to the role of, of others uh you know the multi-generational response those in leadership running organizations etc so so robert back to you what should young people be doing and i really like to hear from isabella and, and ashwini i think the, the word for me is about taking is literally taking action on all different levels so one of the challenges with the pandemic in the uh in those two years is that um young people had to spend a lot of time in their head uh, because they were forced inside, they were forced to not make connections. They were forced to kind of do the things that actually weren't natural for them. They wanted to be out there. They wanted to be active. Um, you know, the media around young people during the pandemic, if there was any media, it was, oh, they're having parties on the beach. You know, let's make sure they don't, you know, infect everyone with their, you know, this, this disease. They, you know, no one really saw the, the impact of that loneliness can have. So it's just getting out. Got to get out. Got to, got to actually almost have to double your experiences just to catch up as a very kind of a simplistic model that uh, I talked to young people about. Right. Yeah. Uh, Isabella, what's, what do you think? What should young people be doing? Yeah. So I think a lot of people, like we've talked about this, but a loss of time meant that people's experiences were kind of pushed back. Um, so a lot of people who, for instance, were planning to take a gap year, who were planning to maybe go on a big, big trip, a lot of those are happening now. Um, and I think that also when people were working essential jobs and things like that, I think they're realizing that those weren't worth it, at least during the pandemic. So, you know, working at your local grocery store when everyone was, you know, <clears throat> 
maybe not in the great headspace, wasn't necessarily worth it. And I think that's why you're seeing so many shortages in, in the, that particular industry. So I think as people are coming out of the pandemic or as we are continuing through it, um, youth need to, I, I hate to put the pressure on youth, but I think that um there has to be something offered in return for the time because I think a lot of people found the edge of what they can handle and there's just simply not enough energy to do everything. So I think that, yeah, there has to be some give and take in, in this next part. Yeah. Actually just thinking about that, we, we've heard a lot recently about the, the great resignation about um, people leaving jobs and stuff like that. I wonder if that's sort of part of that is people are saying, hey, I missed two years. Now I just I don't want to work as hard. I want to go and take the trip that I was planning a couple of years ago or something like that. Uh, Ashwini, uh, what, what, are, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, I, I was having a conversation with one of my colleagues the other day, and he brought up a point about how youth are often the last in and the first out. And I have to say that I actually disagree with that, especially in the, in the, in the years and the months that have emerged from the peak pandemic period. Just because during the pandemic, I saw how youth who were stuck at home really were building up the momentum to want to be doing something, to build up that passion to want to learn about these issues. And I participated in a number of round table discussions and stakeholder sessions during the peak period in 2020. And the amount of youth that were staffed at these calls and conversations just inspired me because it really showed that youth do want to do something about it. And it's more about tangible action and taking those concrete steps to ensure that youth have the knowledge sharing, skills building and resources to mobilize and concentrate on these efforts. I think in terms of what young people should be doing to prepare, there's always this assumption that young people aren't prepared because they don't want to be or they don't know how to be. But that couldn't be further from the truth, because at least in my opinion, young people are at the best position actually to be leading the future and paving the avenue. But we really do need that guidance and the skill sharing from the leaders, which I know is your next question. So I'm going to hold off on answering that for now. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for alluding forward. Uh, so it's not all about, uh, you know, putting this all in. Ashwini, Ashwini is a mind reader. How does, how does she know what the next question is? Yeah. Um, <laughs> So it's not all, we can't put all this on young people is, is, is where I'm going with this next one. Um, so sorry, just, I, I messed, I messed this up here. Um, so let's, so, so as leaders, so that's where I'm going. So as leaders of cities, uh, municipalities, uh, uh organizations, workplaces, um, what is our role in this? How do we, attract younger residents to our cities? How do we engage them? Um, how do we work with even at the volunteer level? How can we sort of um, mend this, uh, you know, you know, I'm going the chasm that's, that's been, that's been in place here now that we're talking about um, starting with uh, back to Ashwini. What do you think? Um, you alluded forward to the next question. What do you think uh, is the role of established leadership across the board? So I'll start I'll start with with an experience in that over the past two summers, our organization, the Brown Citizen Circle, we held a virtual 
youth social policy case competition. And we asked youth, this has been concentrated in Ontario over the past two years, hopefully going to expand. But we asked youth to come forward and then really have a roundtable discussion on some of the issues that were affecting them. And one of the biggest things they said was financial empowerment or financial literacy. And to this point, it's especially prevalent with visible minorities and racialized youth who live in the GTA, and particularly between the ages of 14 to 25. So they are in some of the most vulnerable positions right Right now in terms of their lack of knowledge sharing with financial literacy, but also the pre-existing lack of access to resource building. And I think I'm speaking particularly to racialized youth and visible minorities because I am part of that community. Unfortunately, a lot of the time, most organizations are not equipped to prepare for the success of, of BIPOC people. For example, this year alone, I think almost 400,000 Indigenous youth are going to be of age to enter the labor market. But a lot of the pre-existing inequities or the lived experiences that they go through are not recognized when entering the labor force. So in my opinion, I think that leaders and companies and institutions should really work now to foster a sort of dialogue between traditionally underrepresented or racialized youth groups and these sort of communities or institutions who often sit at the top of the corporate ladder. It's really about that, not only validating the lived experiences for each player, but also increasing the avenues for stronger knowledge sharing by amplifying these voices. So it's sort of a two-step process. And I think this is really what leaders and institutions and corporations should be focusing on in order to bring more youth towards the workforce. I love that. Yeah, I love that. Really good answer. Um, inspiring. Um, Isabella, what, what are your thoughts? Mm, sort of just to play off of what Ashwini said, I think also people at the top need to realize and um, offer offer more. I think people um, are going to continue to see labor shortages because it's simply too expensive, at least in Victoria, to to work a job and rent at the same time, for instance, and afford the growing cost of groceries, things like that. Um, I think employers, if you are able to offer more flexibility, offer better benefits if you can, that's really going to attract youth workers to your workforce. And not only that, but you, like Ashwini said, you need to be able to understand what's going on for diverse diverse perspectives. Like, for instance, what did you do for Truth and Reconciliation Day at your offices? Did you observe that? What happened? Um, can you have those conversations? I think people are not just looking at what can this offer, what can this company offer me in terms of work experience, but what can they offer me in terms of understanding my experience and where I'm coming from? So I think it's not just about, you know, it is just about offering more if you can um, and if you're able to. Really good answer. Yes. And, uh, Robert, your work, uh, literally with youthful cities is about making recommendations around this question, around what, how people respond to these issues. What are your thoughts? Yeah. And I, I, so, um, in May last year, we released a report, uh, with help of RBC Future Launch, uh, looking at the, trying to find the most affordable city for youth in Canada. So, uh, and our definition of youth is a bit, so it's 15 to 29. So we looked at 27 cities and affordability is a combination of ideally high incomes and low cost. That actually gets me, that, that gets the affordability. So the answer was of the 27 cities as the most affordable, um, there wasn't one city that young people didn't lose money every single month. 
Wow. So in other words, there is no affordable city in Canada, big, small, medium. Like we looked at a whole bunch of different sizes too. Victoria, sorry, came 19th in affordability. Um, I'll just to give you a sense of the size of that, to, to have a living wage in Victoria would require a $5 an hour increase in minimum wage. And that's just to get you to neutral. And then, you know, people say, well, we need to, we need to help young people buy houses. <laughs> they need to save a little bit of money before they can actually buy a, buy a house, right? So I think, so from a salute on the solution side, either have to increase the wages or you have to decrease the costs. And on the wage side, I think there's, there's room, um, there's room to grow. Again, lots of generational inequities around that, uh, on the wage side. Even the, the sort of great resignation happened at the top level experience, certainly not at the lower level of experience. So you have to, we have to bridge that, that experience gap by getting people to, getting people into the system. The second one is, you know, transit really should be free for people under 25, not under 12. You know, that's something a municipality actually has control over. It allows young people to get more access to their cities and not have to worry about it. Um, it makes transit safer the more people are on there and they and uh, the cost of transit affects young people in a disproportional way to other populations. Um, you need to deal with rent. Um, you need to find a way to I'll open up the multi um, bedroom dwellings that are in, you know, Oak Bay and other places around uh, Victoria to allow more students in. I keep hearing about the students who can't go to UVic because they just can't find a place that they can afford. So they're just not going. So that means we're back to that stuck scenario. Now, the final one I'd put in there is you need to drop the voting age to 16. You know, we need to compensate with for that aging population by actually allowing more young people in to vote at an earlier age to kind of open up the door for new solutions like Ashwini's group is putting forward and and other young people are putting forward. There's there's no reason not to do that, but Canada has it. Other countries have, so it's not a we wouldn't be the first to do that. But you know that's a kind of policy recommendation for it's more of a BC one, but you know Victoria should be lobbying for that. Interesting. Yeah, that's lots lots of intriguing things there. And, you know, we had uh, obviously we just went through a a municipal election and a lot of these issues were talked about around transit and access and and, uh, you know, making making places that are more youth friendly, um, both from a child and, you know, play parks and splash pads perspective, but also thinking about spaces that are designed more for for young adults to, to connect uh, that aren't that aren't a bar right uh, or a shopping mall um, and you know places that are recognizing that people have diverse perspectives of how they use the city uh, both from a safety perspective but also from a social connection perspective. So I'm going to jump ahead. I know just to get the audience charged up here. So if you have questions for the panel, please put them in the in uh, the Q and A. I'm going to ask one more question here just to get us going. But as they're speaking, just uh, put your put your thoughts uh, to paper here. On the next question, so I'm going to jump to this uh, optimism question, which we alluded forward, alluded uh, at the beginning. Um, as an optimist, I like to find opportunities um, for progress wherever I wherever I can. Uh, young people um, are so um, well positioned they're, because they're looking at the rest of their lives and saying, you know, what can I do? What you know, where is this life going to take me? And and uh, we don't want to leave. We want to sort of knock these disadvantages and barriers out of their way as much as possible. Um, but question for everyone, uh, and I'll start with uh, Isabella, how do we accelerate this uh, optimism, the the attributes of young people? How do we sort of help uh, 
knock these barriers down from established leaders and also what assets do young people bring uh, to this to this uh, journey? Mm-hmm. So I think Ashwini has touched on this, but I think first and foremost, you need to listen and then you also need to, to make action. So I think the pandemic has pushed a lot of young people to be more politically informed, politically active um, and I think there's a big emphasis on listening to young people and understanding what they're going through. But then that also needs to help with change. That needs to bring about some sort of action. You can't just listen and say, I hear your experiences and maybe on the outside say that you're going to do stuff and then not actually work on it or create action. So, for instance, a lot of people in the municipal elections talked about climate change, talked talked about um, increasing availability of accessible and affordable rentals. I'm really interested to see if any of those actually go through and um, if any change is actually going to happen. So I think uh, not just focusing on listening, but also, you know, making good on your word. Like if you're, if you want to help us, help us. <laughs> yeah. Wonderful. Um, Ashwini. Yeah, so our organization likes to live by a little three-pronged approach, uh, excuse me, vocalize, amplify, and equip. So like Isabella was saying, vocalize the experiences and and especially the lived experiences of youth and really encourage our stories to be heard, seen, and represented, but amplifying them as well and really recognizing the positionality and diversity of experiences in each community, which will ultimately lead lead us, excuse me, to equipping youth to form connections and and especially a broader array of connections and networking in this increasingly virtual world. And I think something important to consider is how accessible information is to young people. We still need a lot of connectivity and mentorship opportunities, and we need help navigating the system. And it makes me think of, for example, if you're in a remote or a rural area as a youth, where your career choices are usually limited to a teacher or a nurse, how exactly do you learn about careers like green tech or an e-commerce worker? How can you make that information more accessible and go into these communities and assure youth that there's a variety of opportunities to choose from. So I think youth have that skill set to meet this sort of more knowledge demand and an innovative and creative economy, but really making sure we put in those resources and that accessibility framework to cater to these diverse youth is going to be a critical step for the government and the economies. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, Robert, what are your thoughts? I think I'll go more philosophical on this one because I think it's important and this audience participation again, if you've got a, a pen or you can type it into your phone, but there's, when we look at youthfulness, we've actually defined it in six terms, six adjectives. So um, youthful means to be connected, to be curious, to be open, to be dynamic, inventive, and playful. Curious, connected, open, dynamic, inventive, and playful. So first of all, if you think about the pandemic, it literally wiped all of those things out for everybody. We sucked all the youthfulness out of society. But the group that's most likely to bring it back fastest is actually young people. That's where you learn those skills. That's where you inherently have them. People will lose them over time um, if they choose to lose them. They don't have to. Like, you could be youthful into your 90s and and hundreds if you want to. You just have to make a conscious choice to do that. But in order for you to start 
if to be youthful, you actually have to build those skills in those youth years, right? That life stage. But that's really what they bring young people bring to employers. Like, would you want to hire someone if you scrap the age thing and the, and the, and the photo, or you want to hire someone who's curious, connected, inventive, you know, open, dynamic and playful? Yeah. Bring them on. You want to have a city that embodies that? That's what actually makes cities vital, ex, you know, exciting. That's what's going to bring in new businesses, new, you know, a vibrant economy is based on those same values. So the more young people you bring in, and I'll just toss out a challenge to Victoria, just make a commitment. You're going to house 100% of the people who want to come into the city. Find a way, find a bedroom, find a, you know, a safe spot for those young people to come in because you've got one of the lowest youth populations by percentage in the country right now. So it's going to be really tough to shift the economy if you have that big a gap in young people. But those values are so critical to organizations, they're so critical to cities. And those are the things that we want to keep promoting going forward. Yeah, wonderful. I, I completely agree. And I live in the neighborhood uh, closest to, uh, or one of the neighborhoods that sort of surrounds UVic. And it's it's sort of staggering to me that how many there like how few options there are for like student housing, you know, like there's single detached housing that's sort of literally surrounding the, the campus and we should have density, uh, more density around there and make it more vibrant and more just as an anecdote for what you're talking about. Yeah. Well, and, birth rate in Canada as well. So we're not even, we're not even making our own young people to, <laughs> to, to well, replace and, the, uh, aging. You know, as, as probably I'm sure Isabella knows this one, but you know, universities literally made billions of dollars during the pandemic. Uh, students got zero discount on subpar education. And, you know, how many residences are we building? Like, are we, are we keeping up with the capacity? We've, we've basically told every young person in Canada, they have to have a university degree just to get a base level of success. And we yeah. can't actually house them for their first year of university. Okay. I'm going to jump to a, a couple of uh, audience questions here. Um, the first one is, um, a perspective about the, the makeup of the panel and just our our inherent biases from our worlds. But um, I'll jump to the, the the root of the question, which is what are the experiences of those uh, in the trades? So some of the 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 I mean service cl- service jobs, trades, etc. Um, who who um, were at work, you know, in person construction sites and all these things uh, during the pandemic. Um, what, what are some thoughts on this, uh, just from there, you know, what, obviously we need to build housing. Somebody has to build it, uh, for just as an, an example of a, uh, type of occupation that pays well and, and there's good opportunities in there. Um, what are some thoughts on this? Uh, uh, whoever wants to jump in, maybe I'll just quickly jump in and say, you know, even though it wasn't affordable, the most affordable of the least affordable of the cities was Lethbridge, Alberta. And the reason it was affordable was because of the trades. So that's because they're just higher paid jobs, you know, that, and they, they get you to that living wage. The one challenge in that model around trades is that, uh, Lethbridge was also had the highest gender gap. So, you know, if, if you're a man, you did better in Lethbridge at, you know, almost 20% better, um, than women in that, in that stage. So the trades, as long as it's, uh, certainly across gender lines is a, is a great answer and, uh, and Canada, Victoria needs them desperately. I know lots of <laughs> building projects in, in Victoria have stalled because of lack of labor. So clearly that's a, that's a key part of the solution, I think. Right on. Any, any other uh, thoughts on that? 
Yeah, just playing off of that, there was a headline a while ago that was um, builders can't build houses because they can't find housing in Victoria. So I think a huge thing is still the inequity and unaffordability of the city itself. So and it and it would affect trade as well. So even if you do have a job here and you can't live here, you can't find somewhere to live or rent, um, that's also going to push you out of the city as well. So I think in the municipal elections, that was a huge topic as well. It's like, how do we attract builders? How do we incentivize building in Victoria? And I think I'll be interested to see what they end up doing and how they do that. That's great. And the... uh... So I'm going to jump. There's one last question here, and then we'll have to sort of, I think we'll have to wrap up after this. But, uh, okay, so the question is, uh, in addition to addressing transit, rent, voting age, minimum wage, what are your thoughts on free tuition? Um, I, I think everyone's going to say, wouldn't that be great? Uh, <laughs> as long as the student is attending and achieving, are we missing out on a lot of youth talent that can't get access? Um, I, I guess, quite frankly, can't get access to education or post-secondary education. Um, because of it's contributing to this whole unaffordability um, package that we talked about with housing, et cetera. Everyone's just nodding. Yeah, free free education would be great. Yeah. <laughs> Any thoughts on this? Yeah. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, go, no, no, go ahead, Isabella. Go. I think if you asked any student, yeah, they would say free education would be awesome and would take away a lot of the – um, like post-graduation woes because you wouldn't have this debt hanging over you. Um, <clears throat> whether or not the universities are actually going to ever be incentivized to do that, I think is another question. Um, but yeah, of course, free education, we're losing out on a huge group of people and diverse experiences because they can't even get into universities, they can't afford it. Or even if they can't afford the rent or sorry, if they can't afford the tuition itself, they can't afford to live in the city. So I think it's really telling, for instance, that at UVic, the food bank saw huge levels of um, traffic over the summer. People needed food and were using the food bank really quite often. So I think yeah, tuition is huge, but so is the affordability. So if you can try and make the city more affordable, then education is going to go hand in hand in that. Right. All right. Last uh, just comment from Ashwini. I just wanted to hear just expanding on that uh, uh, perspective about your work and in working uh, in diversity and with racialized populations. We all know that indigenous uh, populations are very fast growing uh, all across the country, but BC has a has a large number um, of, of indigenous population that's, uh, you know, we, we, we obviously to engage them and, and to get, uh, you know, to, to, to embrace this idea of the journey of, of reconciliation. Uh, thoughts on that? And then we'll wrap up. So I, there's a decolonization coordinator at, at our work, and she said something that I always think about, which is indigenization is the job of indigenous people, but decolonization is the work of everyone. And I really try to integrate that philosophy into my work every day because I've been trying to think about what does it mean, especially for me, who is an immigrant to Canada, but it still still benefits from settler privilege. What does that mean? And how can I use my experiences and take accountability in order to account for the other First Nations peoples and indigenous communities? 
communities that are, have settled in our land first and foremost. And if your question is more about engagement, I would say that Indigenous peoples are tired and they're already exhausted with the amount of effort and the amount of the outpour of their voices and support that have been fueling into issues, for example, the TMX pipeline. And one thing that we can really do in order to aid is not only be a good ally, but it goes back to what I was saying before in terms of really working to validate their lived experiences. A lot of times I think what institutions do and go about the wrong way is asking or requesting Indigenous people to come and share their stories, tell us what we can do better. Those communities don't want to do that. There are already a lot of resources in place for us to learn and take the resources we need to be appropriate allies and not only work to validate their lived experiences and stories, but really amplify the impact of their work. But it is a very thin line because while, you know, indigenization, like I said, it's their job, we can all work to really decolonize our mindset and put more into the resources to support these communities. So I hope that answers your question about engagement. It does. You know, it really, it really, I think it brings home the point that we're all uh, that you are all making throughout this whole panel, and that is that um, the values that that young people coming into these places, whether it's a workplace or a community or a organization or even to a campus, their values are are these are all embedded values that most young people carry around diversity and and valuing decolonization and the, and the journey of reconciliation. These are all embedded values that we uh, all benefit from and should embrace. So with that, I'm going to uh, wrap it up. So thank you uh, so much to the three of you, Robert, Ashwini, Isabella, for joining us this morning uh, as part of rising, the Rising uh, Economy Conference uh, 2022. We have a full day ahead. I'm going to turn it back to Kieran, actually my colleague, to uh, set us up uh, for the next session, which is actually uh, relevant to this session also as well, because we're going to be talking about the affordability issue specifically. Um, Kieran, can you uh, can you close this up? Yeah, thanks, Dallas. And thank you to all our speakers for your time and wisdom today. Very much appreciated. Thank you to Royal Roads University for sponsoring this important conversation. And thank you to our presenting sponsor, RBC, and our Catalyst sponsor, Van City, for supporting Rising Economy 2022. We encourage you to head back to the Hoover platform to continue the conversation. Up next, as Dallas mentioned, at 9.30, please join the, uh, for the panel, Vital Conversations, How Can We Afford to Live Here? Thank you for joining us for this great session, part of Rising Economy Week 2022. Thank you very much.